Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We start in Surrey and the plan to get rid of the RCMP and of course transition to a local municipal police department in the city of surrey lots of problems with this plan too check out some of these new surveys it says only 15 percent of the public in surrey actually support uh, going ahead with this plan and look at this it says only 14 percent of surrey rcmp officers would patch over as they say consider switching over to the municipal force where are they going to find all these new cops let's discuss now with my guest sergeant trevor dinwoody a staff sergeant with surrey rcmp he's a pacific region board member for the national police federation which is like the rcmp union i'm very pleased to welcome him to the show sergeant dinwoody thanks for coming on Oh, thank you for having me, Mike. It's uh, uh, completely appreciated that you would have me on such a busy show. Yeah, so, it's, it's, it's our uh, pleasure. Our pleasure to have you here. What are what are uh, RCMP officers in, in Surrey? What are they feeling like these days as uh, the city moves forward with the plan to move to a municipal force? Well, I think uh, to be completely honest, I think it's a morale killer. Um, quite frankly, a lot of uh, RCMP officers in Surrey, eight hundred and fifty of them you know, um, have dedicated their lives to public safety and yeah. to being in that city and doing what, what is necessary to obviously uh, do, do what they do. What they do. And, um, you know, um, the last couple of years have been a very difficult, difficult time when you have a mayor that is, uh, you know, uh, speaking out against the RCMP, uh, against the police force that is uh, working within his region. Um, members are starting to get, uh, you know, the, the morale is definitely uh, taking its toll. Wait, sure. When is the uh, when is the current RCMP contract in Surrey? When does that expire? So we're looking at April first <laughs> this wow. year. It's pretty that soon. The, uh, the, the contract expires. Um, we do not have um, at this point in time um, a credible. Uh, you know, um, uh, example or, or, or anything moving forward. So um, it's it's been it's been very difficult for our members. Um, obviously, there 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 must be. I'm I'm assuming there must be a gentleman's handshake um, at provincially or federally um, that the RCMP will continue to serve Surrey. But um, you know, as we as we move forward, there's a lot of what ifs. Okay, it's interesting some of the studies that have been done on this in the last few days. We've seen several surveys uh, done over the, pa- over the past few weeks and months that show uh, waning support among the public in Surrey for this plan. Now, McCallum, Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum, he's got a mandate to do this. He won an election campaigning on this plan, and he says it's going forward. Come hell or high water here, but what are you hearing from the public? Like, Do you believe that most of the public want to keep the Mounties? Well, I I have spent my entire 18 years in Surrey. Um, I can tell you right now that I have had nothing but uh, public support for what we are doing and um, uh, absolutely every endeavor. Uh, When I go for a walk, I live in the city of Surrey, and when I go for a walk, um, there are hundreds upon hundreds of houses 
with uh, keep the RCMP in Surrey signs on their lawns. So that just speaks to the issue. Um, quite frankly, we've done a lot of polling. Obviously, uh, we, we want to be research-based um, and we want to be educated in absolutely everything that we're doing as an organization. And um, the polling speaks to, uh, obviously, that, the mem- that, that people of Surrey want the RCMP to stay. Uh, only uh, 70, 70, seven, sorry, I apologize, 77% of uh, Surrey residents have said yeah. that they want the RCMP to stay. Wow. Okay. Speaking to Sergeant Trevor Dinwoody from Surrey RCMP in the Pacific and the uh, National Police Federation, what about the challenge of, of staffing up um, a new, a brand new municipal police force? Like, I think the original plan was, well, most of the existing RCMP officers in Surrey would just simply kind of switch uniforms, switch over to the local mm-hmm. municipal police, police force. Uh, what are you finding out about that? Because you've done some research on that too, right? Yeah, absolutely, Mike. I mean, it's difficult. Uh, it's difficult to say how many people would actually look at that. Um, the reality uh, and that we're we're seeing is that uh, you know the RCMP pension does not uh, does not uh, quickly uh, transverse over to the Category Five municipal pension plan. So obviously, wow. RCMP officers that would be switching over. Um, would be facing, uh, you know, uh, uh, an extensive uh, financial. Well, you mean they'd, lo- they'd uh, lose their they'd lose their pension? Well, they wouldn't lose their pension. They would have to pay into the new pension, the new pension plan, and so that becomes difficult. So, I, I, I uh, you know, in the research that we're doing, um, it's speaking exclusively to the fact that the RCMP would not transfer over. And what you would be looking at is uh, other municipalities. So you have your New West, your Deltas, your uh, Vancouver's that would be looking at the Surrey Police Service. Yeah. So they their their pension could transfer over no problem, 100% right across the board. Okay. So what would happen is you're going to see this musical chairs of police officers leaving New Westminster, Vancouver, Delta to come to Surrey. And uh, what that what that creates is obviously a public safety issue. I've heard from some Vancouver police officers who like the idea of working for the Surrey Police Department because they live in Surrey. Yeah, you know, absolutely. You know, like yeah, go ahead. A- absolutely, Mike. Um, you know, my my understanding and uh, mo- the most recent figures that I've been uh, apprised of uh, is fifty percent of Vancouver Vancouver police officers live in Surrey or on the border of Surrey, so uh, wow. so to speak, is Langley. Okay. But, um, okay. When yeah. you said uh, public safety could be at risk because of this, what do you mean? Well, I just uh, you're going to have uh, positions filled in Surrey Police Service that would be leaving Vancouver, leaving Delta, leaving New Westminster, leaving West Vancouver. Um, those organizations, those police services, are going to obviously have to fill those positions. It takes a long time to create a police officer. I think if you go from cradle to grave, you look at a police officer, it takes many, many years to, you know, establish them within their community to understand what investigations are, to move through through the principles of, you know, uh, uh, like North American policing. And so um, to see to see those people leave, go to Surrey Police Service would be uh, obviously um, 
terrible for those okay. communities. Final question for you. Has this train left the station already? I mean, I know you guys are fighting hard to remain in Surrey, but it, it seems like the, the, the dice have been cast here and, and it's too late. Are, are you holding out ho- hope that maybe the RCMP could somehow, some way stay in Surrey? No, no. The train hasn't left the station. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously, uh, politics plays a huge role in these types of things. Um, quite frankly, the the Solicitor General the, and the Minister of Public Safety can revert this. They can say that this is not in favor of um, you know uh, public safety, and w- we will continue to move on. That's what we'll do. Okay. Thanks for coming on to talk about it today. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. Thank thank you. Sergeant Trevor Dinwoody there. He's a staff sergeant, Surrey RCMP, a member of the board of the National Police Federation, uh, talking about the plan to transition in Surrey to a municipal police force. Here we go now with the turmoil in the highest ranks of Canada's military. The latest body blow here, the resignation of Admiral Art McDonald as the chief of the defense staff. Sources telling multiple news outlets now uh, that the former military boss under investigation for possible sexual misconduct. Now, are you getting deja vu here on this story? Admiral McDonald had only been in this job for a very short time. He had been brought in to replace General Jonathan Vance. He is facing allegations of misconduct. Let's go back to December here. You're going to hear uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Now, here he is announcing the appointment of the now uh, former military chief, Admiral McDonald, to replace General Vance. Here's Trudeau back in December. Today, I can announce that we will be appointing a new chief of defense staff, Vice Admiral Art McDonald, who is currently the commander of the Royal Canadian Navy, will take on this role as General Jonathan Vance retires from the armed forces. Okay, let's discuss this. It's getting hard to keep track of all of this. Let's check in now with David Puglesi, the very fine uh, writer at the Ottawa Citizen. He's probably the best military reporter in Canada. Dave, thanks for coming on. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks, Mike. Okay, Dave, I know you're right on top of this one. Can you, uh, let's go back to Jonathan Vance, first of all, the guy the guy who stepped aside earlier. What What is he um, accused of? Do we know? So uh, Global News has reported that um, in 2012 he allegedly uh, uh, sent an email. Uh, a young uh, officer asked him for per- career advice, and he responded allegedly with a uh, uh, with um, uh, an invitation to a clothing optional uh, uh, resort to her. Um, the other uh, um, aspect of this is that a, um, a major has come forward. Uh, uh, to essentially say that she's had a 20-year affair with Vance um, while he was, uh, you know, a senior officer, started when he was a colonel, um, continued on uh, when uh, he was named uh, chief of defense staff. So Okay, so that investigation is ongoing. Uh, that's right. being investigated by military police, correct? Right. Okay. So he so he bites the dust. They they bring in uh, this admiral, the chief of the Canadian Navy, and he it looks like he didn't last very long. W- what is he accused of here now? Do we know? Well, so they all they've told us officially is that he is under police investigation. He has voluntarily stepped aside, um, but. Uh, both my newspaper and the CBC have, uh, you know, the original tip that we got that, that led to this announcement was that uh, he was under investigation by police, uh, military police, for sexual misconduct and a couple of other uh, things. Okay, unreal. So who is the, uh, who is the chief of the defense staff now? 
So the uh, head of the Army, uh, Lieutenant General Wayne Eyre, is the acting uh, chief of defense staff uh, right. until this is all sorted out. Right, and I read in some of your reporting, Dave, that uh, the current chief now, the, guy, the latest guy who's been brought in, he had been under consideration for the top job earlier, and they didn't go with him. They probably regret not going with him now. <laughs> That's but, for sure. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, Wayne Eyre is a pretty uh, straight shooter, and uh, he was... Um, he was uh, number two, uh, you know, under consideration. But they decided to go with Art McDonald because, uh, you know, of these uh, mega shipbuilding projects that they have on, underway. Right. And what, what, is the, um, what is the relevance of that? Because he was the former head of the Canadian Navy, right? Right. And yeah. he's, he, he has been involved in, um, in some of these shipbuilding projects, in particular this Canadian Surface Combatant Program, which is skyrocketed in price to uh, $77 billion at this point. So. Right. Okay, this is just devastating, I imagine, to the morale of people in the Canadian military to see this type of turmoil in, in the very highest offices in the Canadian military here. This is extra, extraordinary stuff. And, and when, when this uh, fellow, Admiral Art McDonald, had been brought in, of course, he came in in the wake of the earlier scandal. And didn't he sort of try to set the tone earlier that, look, he was going to have zero tolerance for any, like, sexual harassment and that kind of thing? Yeah, so he apologized to uh, uh, to people in the military who have been subjected to sexual misconduct, harassment, as well as racism and that type of thing. And, um, uh, you know, the day he was, uh, <laughs> the day he voluntarily stepped aside, I've got this story um today's paper, that he um, he sent out a message to everybody and uh, said, oh, well, you know, if there's issues, uh, if you see this, come forward, you know, please, I, I'm here to help. And uh, by the end of the day, he was gone. Okay, so the same day he's trying to set the tone of zero tolerance for harassment, that's the same day that he had to he, he resigned. That's correct. Wow. He, had, he had already been under police investigation, but he didn't know it. Okay, we're finding out a lot of this stuff through the work that you're doing, the digging and reporting that you're doing, and other news outlets as well. But it seems like the government not giving a lot of information out officially. Why is that? So they, they keep saying, oh, we have to wait for the investigation to, uh, to take place. But that's another problem, because you've got these military police investigating both of these senior officers. So the military police ultimately um, report to the vice chief of the defense staff. The vice chief of the defense staff reports to the chief of defense staff. So when when General Vance was being investigated, ultimately the military police were reporting to Art McDonald. So so there's a lot of questions now about, you know, should the military be investigating itself? Right, right. So what is the opposition critics, what are they, the opposition doing on this file? Are they demanding an independent investigation, more disclosure? Yeah, they're trying to, uh, they're trying to uh, kind of focus it on what uh, Defense Minister Harjit Sajjan knew and when he knew it. So the uh, Canadian Forces Ombudsman, Gary Walburn, uh, came forward um, in 2018 and uh, briefed uh, Sajjan on, um, on the issues with Vance. And uh, Sajjan, uh, after that, he refused to talk to the, um, the ombudsman. Um, but he claims that uh, he forwarded information on to the Privy Council office. Um, Privy Council office said the information wasn't good enough to do anything. So, uh, you know, the opposition is essentially trying to peg this on Sajjan. You know, why didn't you order an investigation? 
and they're trying to do that uh, as well with Art McDonald uh, issue as well. Right. Speaking of Dave Puglazi, reporter at the Ottawa Citizen, about the the turmoil here in the highest ranks of Canada's military, has has there been any comment at all, Dave, from either Jonathan Vance or Art McDonald? These now uh, two former top-ranking military officials in the country have either of them said anything? So uh, Art McDonald hasn't said anything. Um, we keep asking uh, General Vance uh, for comment, but um, he has talked to in the early days. He talked to Global. Uh, news who uh, um, did the interview with uh, with uh, one of the women, and um, he denies that he's done anything wrong. Although he admits that he had a relationship with one of the women. Okay, what kind of impact is this having on morale in the Canadian military? Like, what are you hearing from your sources on this? Well, it's it's certainly shaken up the whole system because yeah. if you remember, it was Vance who launched this Operation Honor which was supposed to uh, stamp out uh, sexual misconduct in the Canadian forces. Uh, it was quickly, uh, you know, it was called Op Honor. It was quickly renamed by some in the military as Hop Honor, right? Uh, oh, which gives you uh, an idea of uh, somehow uh, how some people roll. Um, and, um, you know, Operation Honor has, hasn't really shown a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of uh, improvement. Um, and, um, you know, the woman that had the affair with Vance, she said that, uh, um, you know, the day he was, uh, the night before he was writing his op honor speech, they're in the, they're in bed together. So, um, anyway, so, you know, it's shaken, uh, it, it's shaken trust in the, uh, in the military leadership. Amazing, Dave. Great work that you've done on it. Thanks for coming on to talk about it today. Great. Thank you. Okay, that is Dave Puglazi, the award-winning military reporter with the Ottawa Citizen. And we continue to follow uh, that one very closely for you, like a merry-go-round there in the top office of Canada's military. Good news on the vaccine front. Canada now has a third vaccine to fight the COVID-19 pandemic. The AstraZeneca vaccine approved this morning. Here is Dr. Supriya Sharma from Health Canada making the announcement. After in-depth reviews of the evidence, we've determined that these vaccines meet the department's stringent safety, efficacy, and quality requirements. Okay, that's Dr. Supriya Sharma earlier this morning announcing the approval of this latest vaccine for use in Canada. Let's discuss now with my guest, Jason Kinderchuk, Canada Research Chair in the Department of Infectious Diseases, University of Manitoba. Thanks a lot for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me on, Mike. Okay, this is exciting news and, and, and good news, right? I mean, it's good news. Anytime we get a new vaccine approved, it's good, right? Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I, I appreciate the fact that you always kind of have to ask it, you know, questioningly of like, is this, a, you know, an actual good development? Yeah, th- yeah, this is fantastic. This is really, really important for us. Okay, what can you what can you tell us about this particular vaccine? How effective is it? Well, so, so far, what we've seen is obviously this discussion about 62% efficacy. Well, what we have to kind of keep in mind is that this is in regards to, to any symptoms of disease. What we do know, though, is that from the original clinical trials, that we didn't see severe disease. We did not see any fatalities. So what this means is that this is a vaccine that actually works very well in reducing hospitalizations and, and certainly reducing the, the toll that we've seen on the most vulnerable groups across Canada. And, and right now, we're looking at data coming out of Scotland 
Scotland that is suggestive that even after one dose of the vaccine, they've had about 500,000 people that, that have gotten uh, vaccinated so far. They've seen you know 94% reduction in hospitalizations. That, that to me is amazing. And that includes people that are in high age groups. So I think we're starting to get up some perception of real world data saying that even after one dose, this vaccine is actually extremely, extremely good. Okay, that's very encouraging to hear because when people hear a 62% efficacy rate, they think like, well, that's not that good. I mean, we've heard about the Pfizer vaccine being like 95%. So do you think there may be a a situation developed where some people would want to try and pick and choose about which vaccine they get? I certainly think there will be. And that's, you know, we've done it to ourselves in the sense that we had two vaccines that came out of the blocks that did amazingly well, right? Right. That we certainly did not think was going to happen. But we have to appreciate that when we're thinking about this idea of efficacy, it's not about how many people die or how many people live or how many people end up with severe disease. It's literally how many people were symptomatic with COVID-19. And to be fair, listen, I am more than happy myself to take a vaccine that had a low or efficacy rate, um, knowing that I'm going to actually end up probably with more cold-like symptoms than severe disease with with COVID-19 for for myself in in the age group that I'm in. For people that are in a higher risk group, now maybe there has to be some different considerations for for which vaccine uh, they should get. Do we also continue to learn more about the effectiveness of these vaccines as time goes on? Like we hear the 62% figure right now, but as the vaccine rolls out and it's more widely distributed, do we learn more about how effective it is, Like especially against the variant strains of sure. COVID that we're seeing? Sure, 100%. And I think that's one of the important things is that we have, you know, basically the clinical trial data, but now we're actually getting some real world data. Well, what we're seeing is that, in fact, the real world data suggests that, again, after one vaccination, just in Scotland, we saw some really positive data. Now we're seeing data that suggests, well, in fact, if you move out to your second dose rather than being four weeks, instead maybe 12 weeks, we actually see that maybe there's a benefit in doing that. And by the way, we now have data to suggest that for AstraZeneca as well as the other vaccines, that they also decrease transmission or seemingly decrease transmission. So all this is giving us actually a much better and I think rosier picture than maybe we had anticipated from from the, the trial date in December. Right. It's very, very encouraging for sure. My guest is Professor Jason Kindrachuk from the University of Manitoba talking about the approval of the AstraZeneca vaccine. How much of this vaccine is coming to Canada? Do we know at this point? Yeah, so so far it looks like we've secured 20 million doses, and there was just an wow. announcement that we've actually secured an additional 2 million doses as well. So they, they should start rolling in in the springtime. Uh, to me, that, again, is <laughs> when we think about our population being at 30 million this is a really significant portion of the population. We can get vaccinated with a vaccine, by the way, that is also stable, and we can actually move out to underserved communities uh, fairly readily. Okay, so you anticipated one of my questions there, and that's the storage of this vaccine and how it can be moved around. So it's not one of those deep freeze ones that that we've had before. No, we have more flexibility yeah. on that. And, and yeah. you know, that, that is something that I, I think we haven't necessarily thought a lot about in regards to not only Canada, but across the globe. This is a pandemic that's affecting regions where we can't get things moved around uh, based on, on extreme cold storage. So uh, it certainly gives us just a, a, an amazing bonus. Okay. Uh, what about the safety of the vaccine? I mean, when, when they go through this approval pro- process in Canada and it finally gets this, uh, this approval, uh, that means the, vac- the vaccine is safe. 
correct? Yeah, 100%. And I think when you look back at the data, we, we always see that there are adverse events with vaccines because they are meant to boost your immune system. So people get, you know, they frankly, they get fevers within the first day or two days of being vaccinated. In some cases, they'll have muscle soreness. They may feel a little bit lethargic. I know how I felt after my Ebola vaccine. Um, but you know what? It, after a couple of days, the one thing you have some confidence in is that you're not going to end up in the hospital with, with COVID-19. And I think that's the thing that, that we need to focus on. There's some short-term uncomfortability with getting vaccinated, but yeah. that's actually an indication that you're going to be protected. What about people who've already had COVID-19? Do they, do they build up antibodies in their body and maybe they don't need the vaccine or should they get the vaccine anyway, even if they've had COVID already? Well, certainly the original recommendations were, were that people that had, uh, you know, been back, uh, sorry, been uh, infected in the past, that they should get both doses of, of the uh, approved vaccines at that point, just Pfizer and Moderna. Well, what we're seeing now is more data that's suggesting that, in fact, you may be actually able to limit that to one dose, and that dose would actually be used somewhat as a booster for those people that were uh, that were infected previously. So we, we still want to see people get vaccinated, but the the kind of the requirements or the recommendations are changing again gain based on the data as uh, as it's being accrued. And, and keeping in mind, you know, this is 14 months since the emergence of this virus. So right. data is going to continue to come in very, very quickly. Okay, we just got one minute left here. It's good news on the vaccine front. Obviously, we've got the Pfizer, the, uh, the Pfizer vaccine, the Moderna vaccine, and now the AstraZeneca. Are there any others still in, in development and still being reviewed and studied? Yeah, yeah, there are. So Johnson & Johnson and Novavax are the next two. And Johnson & Johnson uh, looks like they're going to go in front of the, uh, the FDA for approval, hopefully uh, maybe even today or the next few days. And that likely will, uh, will spur Health Canada on to, to make a decision uh, pretty soon. So I, we're, we're getting closer to even two more vaccines. Wow, it's fantastic. All right, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me on, Mike. You bet. I appreciate it a lot. That is Professor Jason Kindrachuk there from the University of Manitoba. And the news this morning that a third vaccine has been approved for use in Canada. Now the AstraZeneca vaccine and the government saying they've secured 22 million doses expected to start arriving in the spring. Let's talk about Canada's mandatory hotel quarantine now for air travelers arriving in the country. Lots of problems with this program. Many Canadians reporting they could not get through on the government phone line to book a room in an approved hotel. Meanwhile, very disturbing reports about sexual assaults related to the quarantine program. The Public Health Agency of Canada investigating reports of two returning travelers who say they were sexually assaulted during their mandatory quarantine period. Have a listen to this now. This is Conservative MP Michelle Rempel-Garner uh, talking about these hotel quarantines and the safety issues here in conversation with our own Jill Bennett yesterday. If the federal government can't keep people safe in these facilities and they don't have evidence that it is going to be more effective in preventing the spread of COVID than on arrival testing combined with at-home quarantine, then like, it needs to be suspended. Okay, the Conservatives calling for the mandatory hotel quarantine to be suspended at this point. Let's discuss now with my guest, Jeffrey Rath. He's a barrister and constitutional law expert at Rath & Company in Calgary, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Jeff, thanks for coming on. Hey, Mike. Thanks for inviting me back. Okay, you bet. These are disturbing reports about sexual assault here related to the, the, uh, the mandatory quarantine program. What are you hearing about this? Well... You know, the same as everybody else. I mean, I was yeah. just completely disgusted when I read the news reports. I guess we can now start calling them Trudeau's rape hotels as oh. opposed to his incarceration hotels. 
I mean, I don't know what these morons thought when they instituted this program um, with a bunch of rent-a-cops in charge of it that, you know, they didn't think that something like this was going to happen. I mean, it's the way this program has been rolled out and mismanaged. I mean, this makes Trudeau's idiocy and incompetence on the vaccine program look about 10 times worse. This is just completely despicable. Okay, so we got two reports here of alleged sexual assault. One assault apparently allegedly taking place at one of the hotels, right? So does this, does this involve allegedly involve like officials involved with the program? Well, the Trudeau's rent-a-cops. The problem with the program is, you know, these aren't Customs and Border Patrol people. These aren't government officials. They put out tenders to, quote-unquote, private security firms who then provide rent-a-cops to, uh, you know, to supervise, um, you know, vulnerable women in these hotels. I mean, it's just completely unbelievable that the government of Canada could be responsible for this kind of debacle. Okay, so you think the program should be, what, shut down? Oh, the entire program's unconstitutional. I mean, I literally, here's, here's a news update from the last time I was on your program, Mike. Yeah, I yeah. spoke to the uh, Department of Justice this week to get an expedited hearing in the case we're taking forward for Nick Colvin. So typically in a judicial review, the government has to file a record of the decision. Well, we've just been told by the Department of Justice that the government is claiming confidentiality and capital privilege to whatever documents or justification or science that they looked at to justify, you know, Trudeau's incarceration program. So, in other words, they're going to be going to court and saying, even though the Oaks test requires the government to justify uh, what they're doing in terms of the infringement of rights, uh, Trudeau's government is taking the view that Canadians aren't entitled to know what the discussion was or what documents they looked at or what the excuse was for coming up with this ridiculous program in the first place. Okay, the, so, the battle. You know, yeah, yeah, the battle against this program heating up for sure. Let me play another clip for you from the, the conservative health critic Michelle Rempel Garner here on yesterday on the show yesterday here with uh, Jill Bennett, and here she is talking about this was brought up in question period with the Liberal government. She was not happy with the response she was getting about the problems with this mandatory hotel quarantine program, and here's what she had to say about it. Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland uh, responded to our party leader's question several times by saying, essentially, people shouldn't be traveling right now. I followed up with a question asking if, uh, you know, they were implying that somehow the victim deserved this uh, because they traveled. I think that's a fair question. And the response that I got from the health minister was women deserve safety or protection from sexual violence. But and there should be no but. She actually said but. Okay. You know, it, it almost sounds like when we hear like people should not be traveling, it almost sounds like we're talking about people going on going on vacay or whatever. Um, in in many cases, these are Canadians who are essential uh, essential travelers coming back, trying to just trying to get back to the country. Are they not, Jeff Rath? Well, I was I was I was contacted by a woman this morning um, who was thrown into one of Trudeau's incarceration hotels, and she's a regular like she works on a project as an engineer down in the United States. So her project contract, she's three months or three weeks out, one week back. They, she said, look, I'm a regular traveler. I'm exempt. Here's my L1 visa. Here's the stamp in my passport saying I'm exempt. And one of the rent-a-cops at the airport said, well, we don't care. Um, we call regular travelers people that go back and forth across the border every day or two, not every week or two. You have to go stay in, a, in an incarceration hotel. So, and of course... When we all travel, we give up quite a bit of freedom. Once you're in the customs area, you're effectively incarcerated. 
you have customs uh, and border patrol agents with you know with sidearms. There's police around. You're not free to leave once you're in the customs area. So you know, you know that's bad enough. But then you've got people that are then being coerced, even if they're exempt, to go into these hotels. They don't have any yeah. choice in the matter. And if the decision doesn't make any sense, it doesn't matter. There's nobody you can appeal to. Okay, because it's let, just a bunch of rent-a-cops and low-level officials who, you know, don't have a clue as to what they're doing. Okay, let me let me make something clear with you. Like, you're obviously a, you're a fierce critic of the progr- program, obviously, but you're you're not opposed to a, a quarantine period in principle, right? Like, are you saying that people, instead of going to a mandatory hotel quarantine, they should be allowed to self-isolate and self-quarantine in their own homes? Well, that's been my question from day one. I mean, if yeah. you know, if people that are symptomatic for COVID, like you know, you've got a cough and you've got a sore chest and your runny nose and throat and all the rest of it, you you know, are trusted to drive to a testing center by yourself. You're trusted to drive home by yourself and wait for your results. Then, if you're COVID positive, you're trusted to self quarantine for 14 days. Uh, there's no justification for the rules with people for people returning to Canada with a negative COVID test in hand that they've obtained within the last 72 hours to be forcibly incarcerated in what now we will be calling Trudeau's rape hotels. Well, this is just disgusting. Okay, but they're worried about the variants, right? They're worried about the variant strains of COVID coming into the country from from overseas. That, I'm right? sure that's going to be their excuse. The variants are already here. And, you know, and, and the variants will show up on a COVID test. They're testing for them. So if you have a negative test in hand, you know, you're negative for the variant which is better than you can say for people that are already in Canada because the variants are already here. It's not an excuse. So somebody who's symptomatic that's being trusted to drive to a a testing facility and self-isolate could well have the variant already. The variants are already in Canada. So to suggest otherwise is simply false. Okay. And then on top of it, these people are coming back from countries that have been deemed safe or in areas you know, where you know, the tests are covering the variants. Okay. Thanks for coming on today. My pleasure. Thank you. Okay. Jeffrey Rath, he's a lawyer in Calgary. And obviously, as you hear, they're a fierce critic of the mandatory hotel quarantine. If you enjoy camping in the great outdoors here in BC, listen up. Mark, mark down March 8th on your calendar. That is the opening day to reserve a campsite on BC's online reservation system, March 8th. And this year, camping uh, priority goes to BC residents. Now, you know you got to know a few tricks of the trade here in order to snag your campsite that you want. Let's check in with Sam Waddington now, owner of Mount Waddington's Outdoors. Hey, Sam. Hey, how's it going today, Mike? I'm, I'm doing great. So March 8th is when the system opens. And what do you advise to people if they're hoping to snag a campsite in their, fam- their favorite campground? Should they be like sitting in front of their computer on March 8th with their credit card ready to go? <laughs> yeah, it feels like race day. Um, I would say that's like three steps probably too uh, too late to the program. Um, but yeah, you do need to be ready. So, you know, one of the things we recommend is is understanding your upload speed. So when you click, it doesn't immediately register on the BC uh, Parks website. So you can test that kind of stuff and see just how long from your given IP address it takes to register um, an action. And uh, And so, you know, you might be clicking three seconds before or you know, whatever it is to, uh, to get, uh, to get that specific campsite. And it is down to that type of wire. Um, last year, as many folks know, 
uh, the website crashed because there was just so much traffic. So right. it is a first-come, first-served basis, and you want to be first in line. Okay, lots of people want to get on there and be savvy here and get the campsite that they want. Now, it goes in two-month rolling increment windows, right? So so you can only book two months ahead. Is that correct? Is that still the deal? Yes, that was done just because of the volume. So basically, yeah. opening day is really the only critical volume day. And then, you know, if you're if the day you want to book is, you know, 70 days out from March 8th, then you, you wait an extra, whatever that is, 10 days from, right. from March 8th before you can book that day. So, yeah, it really is just uh, anyone who wants to book in that first two-month booking window where it's going to be a challenge for uh, for reservations, I think. Right. So if you're looking to book a campsite in the summer, you should count back, what, two months before your the day you want to camp and make sure you're on the website to reserve that day. Exactly. Right? Yeah. 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 And it's, um, yeah, and, and I mean, it's a challenge, right? We, even on the best of years, um, this is something we've been struggling with for um, for for decades, I suppose. But um, but BC's uh, park system is is certainly overwhelmed. Uh, both visitors, residents alike, love to go camp in in our beautiful province, and so um, it's a challenge. And last summer with COVID, it was just accentuated. And and this summer, um, we're not going to start with lockdowns, so it's uh, it's looking like it's going to be an even busier summer because. You know, we all kind of know the rules now and how to play by them. And, um, and you know, getting out camping is, is a totally safe and, and great uh, way to spend time with your family this summer. It's going yeah. to be popular. For sure. Those websites going to be uh, going to be busy again, I think. What about the, uh, this, the priority for B.C. residents? British Columbians will have priority access to reserve a campsite. And a lot of B.C. residents, I think, will be happy to hear that. But it's being done on the honor system, right? Like you don't have to provide proof that you're a B.C. resident. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. So, um, I mean, I should I should say that you do sort of need to provide proof, which is that you click a button saying that you are a BC resident, right? So, um, you know, is that going to be enough? We're we're not sure. But the interesting piece is like this has been called for um, by you know myself and other critics for for a long time, um, saying should our BC park system have some sort of priority for for BC residents? Um, You know, is it is it both a local asset that should be enjoyed by by British Columbia locals, as well as, you know, a tourism draw that should should be open and available to help drive the tourism economy of this province, right? So um, this year, we're going to try for this this system. It's, you know, COVID's always an interesting time to uh, implement new policy, uh, you know, options and see how they turn out. But um, we hope we're going to have compliance because it's certainly going to be something that British Columbians need and, and, and folks should not be traveling from out of jurisdiction to come yeah. and enjoy our parks. But yeah, you you would hope that if there's any rule breakers, if out of province people are going to click that button and say yes, I'm a I'm a BC resident when they're really not, you would you would hope that that would be kept to a minimum. But we already hear some critics saying like maybe the government should have been a little tougher uh, and more stringent on these requirements. Like maybe you'd have to enter enter an address or a phone number to, to prove you're a BC resident. What what do you think? Yeah, I mean, like honestly, we. <laughs> We have lots of these systems in place, and um, and technology allows us to do that, right? Anyone yeah. who's ever purchased a product, for instance, and British Columbia residents probably are not as familiar with this, but you know, if you're from Alberta and you purchase a product from a British Columbia company, when you put in your postal code in that um, credit card information authorization piece, it registers where you're from and does not charge you PST. We can do this, you know, this location-based. Um, either IP address or credit card information, um, we can do that. And and I think in this case, um, the provincial government chose not to. Um, I hope it. I hope it. I hope it works out because 
Yeah, like I said, it's uh, this is going to be a much-needed vacation for a lot of, especially urban British Columbia residents. And um, I think where we're going to see the most challenges are going to be in our in our you know border region. So uh, in the Rockies and uh, and into areas like Revelstoke and the Kootenays, um, as Alberta residents pop up and over the line, my guess is those are going to be the most challenging provincial parks for 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 travelers. Sam, it's always good to have you on. Thank you for coming on today. Absolutely. Have fun out there, everyone, this summer. Enjoy All right. Thanks a lot. Sam Waddington there, owner of Mount Waddington's Outdoors, with some tips on booking a campsite in British Columbia this year. March 8th is when the reservation system goes live. Mark that one down on your calendar. The B.C. government has just announced they will continue and complete construction of the Site C Dam. The budget set to explode to 16 billion dollars. The government says they are bringing in some new uh, engineering talent to overcome some of the challenges in the construction of the project on the Peace River. Premier John Horgan saying just in the last few moments he did not want to lay off 4,500 workers currently working on the Site C Dam, which is half completed. He said if they walked away from it at this point, they'd have $10 billion in debt and nothing to show for it. Let's get some quick reaction here now from Sonia Firstenau, the leader of the BC Green Party, and I'm very pleased to welcome her Hi. Hi, Mike. Thanks a lot for coming on. Your your reaction to the announcement? Uh, I, I mean, I think British Columbians deserve a lot better than what has happened over the course of many years now with this project, but that the uh, the ongoing decision-making, the secrecy, the lack of transparency, even today, we don't get to see the Milburn report. We just get a summary. We haven't seen the, the, uh, the accounting. It, this is... Uh, very distressing. Uh, and, and what people need to understand is that we are now looking at a project that will produce energy that will cost somewhere in the order of five times more to produce than what it can be sold at. And who's going to make up the difference for that? British Columbians uh, on your hydro bills. This is, this is catastrophic. Well, the, the government today is saying that if they had not continued building the Site C dam, then electricity prices for BC Hydro ratepayers would have gone up 26% because the province would have been stuck with $10 billion in debt and nothing to show for it, and people would have been paying more than 200 bucks a year more in their hydro bills. Your thoughts? Well, this is, this is you know, again... This is much the same as what they were saying in 2017. Had they canceled this project in 2017, which they should have, uh, the debt could have been put on the books and uh, and and brought into BC uh, into the debt of the the total government and could have been managed quite well. What what you have to understand though is there's going to be a 16 billion dollar debt, yeah, and a project that will produce no revenue. And so, you know, the, the math on this doesn't work, and uh, the people of British Columbia should be very worried. And and the fact that, you know, what we've talked about all along here, the lack of transparency, the lack of providing information to British Columbians, all of these decisions have been made. Well, people have known that this project has been going off the rails for several years, right. and that this government continued to make decisions with that knowledge and have gotten us to this point where they are literally digging a giant hole uh, that is uh, terrible. I, I encourage everyone to go read the Muskrat Falls inquiry to see how mm. this ends. Okay, it's you not a happy ending. You mentioned that $16 billion is the new eye-popping price tag 
for this project, and that's obviously the the price on this thing has gone through the roof. But would it not be better to spend sixteen billion dollars and at least have a power project that's going to produce eleven hundred megawatts of power? We're told for a century. Then ten, then spending ten billion dollars with absolutely nothing to show for it except ten billion bucks in debt. Yeah, I mean, and this is this is the problem of where we have reached right now. Now, had government actually listened to experts and uh, taken the advice of the BC Utilities Commission in 2017, we wouldn't be in this terrible situation. But we are where, now, though, right? I mean, did the government have any choice at this point, but other than to continue? Well, here's what I would say is uh, what they owe to British Columbians right now is absolute and complete transparency. And if you are putting this burden on British Columbians, uh, we all deserve to know exactly what is happening at that site, exactly what the costs are, exactly what the geotechnical issues are. We have a right to see all of the reports that have been kept from us. Uh, for over a year now. And I cannot have trust in a government that will not be open and transparent about the single largest infrastructure project in our history and continues to pour money at it uh, without telling British Columbians what is going on. Okay, just to be clear, though, your position is, though, you think the government should walk away from the project and shut it down, though, right? So my position is I I don't have enough trust to really believe what I'm being told anymore because I don't, you know, none of us get to see uh, the reports and the documents that this, these decisions are being based on. Okay. And and this is the ultimate question that this government has to grapple with is they, they need to earn the trust of uh, their colleagues in the legislature and every British Columbian. Uh, and they are not doing that right now because okay. they continue to hide everything. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Mike. Okay, Sonia Fursenau there, leader of the BC Green Party, uh, not happy with uh, the Site C Dam. My next guest is Chris Paulson. He's the BC farmer who caught a lynx in his chicken coop. The big cat had killed a couple of his chickens, was going for number three. He picked the lynx up by the scruff of the neck and gave it a good talking to. Thousands of people have seen the viral video of this. Have a listen. Let's go see the damage you did, buddy. Yeah? Should we go see the damage you did? How many chickens did you get? Hey, you got some of our new ones. Not good, is it? No. Yeah, no, it's not good. <laughs> okay, Chris Paulson joins me now. Hey, Chris, thanks a lot for coming on. Hi, thanks for having me. Okay, Chris, this is an amazing video you shot, your encounter with the Lynx. This has gone viral around the world and has got everybody talking, and I'm, I'm really grateful for your time today. Let's, uh, let's Tell me the story. Like, How did all this go down? This all happened on, well, on the weekend, right? Yeah, you bet. And it was, uh, uh, yeah, just a normal day. And, uh, you know, we live in the forest and uh, on the farm on uh, uh, unseated territory of the Wet'suwet'en uh, First Nations, and so it's quite a wild area, and uh, we, you know, we try and we try and have, uh, with our domestic animals, we try and have uh, free-range chickens, and and, uh, you know, uh, grass-fed beef, and, and all that stuff, and trying to do our best to be uh, uh, organic, and 
Car. and all that sort of stuff. And so we were out, uh, the, the girls were up uh, feeding the horses and the dog went with them. And, um, uh, the dog sort of, uh, has a good relationship with the, the wild spaces as well. And cause we're out and about, uh, you know, in the forest and running into bears and stuff. Mostly, most of the time deer and bear and moose, <clears throat> but today or that day it was, um, uh, I was in the house and I don't think the lynx, uh, probably knew that I was in the house, but he knew that, uh, the girls and the, the dog was up the hill. Uh, feeding the okay. horses. So, so the, lynx, he, the lynx was right in the chicken coop, right? Yeah, he was. Okay. Yeah, he was in there. There was a big commotion. I uh, I come out of the house, and I went down there and uh, looked in, and, and here he was in the chicken house. Okay, he had killed, what, two chickens? Yeah, he c- killed a couple, and I thought yeah. maybe he'd just grab one of those and take off, which was yeah. uh, what I was hoping, but he wasn't. He was batting. He was in there batting away at uh, all the fl- chickens flying around the house like they were uh, like a uh, kitten with butterflies, right? So I, um, so I went in there. He saw me, and he didn't. Uh, he didn't. Uh, he wasn't afraid of me, but he was just really focused on. How big? On how big was chickens. it? How big was it? I, I'd say it's probably a half size lynx. Uh, probably right. in human uh, terms, he was a teenager. Okay. Hungry so, teenager. Okay, so tell me what what you did there. Your decision to you grabbed him by the by the scruff of the neck, right? Yeah, I did. Yeah, and I've done that with uh, you know dogs. We've always had to train our dogs. So uh, and often if you uh, you know they've got a chicken in their mouth, so so you do the same thing. A young pup or something, you just grab them by the scruff of the neck, and yeah. they have that loose skin back there with the, and that's where it's their their mothers uh pack them around with and and sort of uh, i'd seen it before and uh you know a cat will pack her kittens around like so, that so. so what was the reaction what did the lynx do when you grabbed it oh he went just like uh, he, well his, his, his mouth was stuffed with feathers and he looked sort of like uh sylvester j pussycat with uh after he'd eaten pop tweety bird in his mouth right so he uh he, he was uh yeah he kind of went passive and as long as i held him firm in the back of the neck there he was just uh he, he growled he'd growl oh, you a can, little bit but you can certainly hear him growling if it, let's play the let's play the audio again there uh julie do you have the do you have the audio again let's play the audio of uh here's here's what it sounded like again when chris uh, uh, grabbed the lynx let's go see the damage you did buddy yeah should we go see the damage you did how many chickens did you get Hey, you got some of our new ones. Not good, is it? No. Yeah, no, it's not good. Okay, you could hear the lynx growling there, so I guess he was not a happy kitty there. But it, it, it was. You weren't worried about this cat like turning on you and like ripping your face off or anything. Well, no, I wasn't, and I'm not. I, uh, somebody asked me yesterday too. Why? Why? How are you so calm? And and. Yeah. Uh, I think I've learned to, I think my girls, my daughters have taught me that, uh, you come at, you can't, you can't go at anything in with any kind of fear or anger, even judgment. So like I went in there with, uh, with just, uh, you know, and I was able to assess the situation and, and, um, I could see he wasn't, uh, I know kind of links and, uh, that are, you know, they're just focused on on rabbits and grouse and the chickens were close enough to grouse that uh that's all the, i've met them in the wild before and they're just looking over their shoulder they they look at you and you go well go away i'm trying to catch something here so, yeah. so leave, me, you, leave me alone 
Um, so what did you do with the Lynx after you, you called it a bad kitty there? What happened next? Well, we, we let him go. We t- I took him out into the into the bushways, and I'm sure our neighbors have seen uh, uh, Lynx tracks uh, going by their place uh, heading our way, so I'm sure he's uh, already back again, uh, back to his place again, but uh, that's okay. So we've made some adjustments to the chicken house and uh, oh, and uh, to try and pre- prevent the situation again. So Okay. Okay, I'm speaking to Chris Paulson. He's the farmer who picked up the links in the in the viral video. Some, uh, I imagine, some farmers, Chris, uh, faced with a similar situation, would have would have dealt with it with uh, more extreme prejudice there, and maybe and maybe uh, you know shot shot the links or killed the links. Um, but you did you ever did that ever enter your mind to deal with it that way, or you were determined to let the links uh, go? Well, uh, I didn't think that. Uh, uh, I didn't think either way. Um, I guess the place that I've been able to come to is that whether I dispatched the links, whether I would have had to dispatch the links or whether I decided to let them go was, was not so much uh, like, again, coming from there's no fear, no anger, no judgment that I can make that decision. And what's best for the links sometimes, and I mean, the, like the CEO, the conservation officers and stuff are, are the real I realize they're the real heroes in, in all this because I realize, like, man, they, you know, and uh, they got to deal with that sort of stuff every day and, yeah. and they got to do their best. And, and, um, and sometimes, but I think what really needs to be, uh, that really come out of here, whether you dispatch them or, or, or let them go, it's really a, come, it has to come from a place of respect. Yeah. And uh, you know, for for the animal, because they're just amazing, amazing oh, they're animal, be- they're, right? They're so, beautiful for sure. I'm not sure I'd want to pick yeah. one up like like you did. I think I would have been worried about it you know, turning on me. But um, what is what's been the reaction? I mean, this video has gone viral around the world. What what kind of reaction have you received to it? Oh, just well, I'm really grateful for the for the press. I, I'm just yeah. really impressed with that. When I, when we first put, I took the video. So I could show my girls because they were up the hill, and I wanted them to show see this lynx. And uh, and I posted a picture and and uh, on Facebook. Uh, and I'm not too uh, savvy at Facebook, and and everybody go, yeah, right, okay, the cat's dead. Oh yeah, right on, you got the cat. And, it's, and then there was other responses where, oh, you know, all oh, the poor cat, you killed the cat. And, well, so then I thought, well, gee, I gotta I gotta post this video to. <laughs> to show people that I didn't kill the cat and and the cat wasn't dead and and so, and then and that's what scared me the most was the response after I posted that uh, I actually pulled the video off after fifty six or sixty thousand views I, I it terrified me that's what ter- <laughs> I didn't the links didn't terrify me it was that response to it and now I'm really grateful that uh that it's sparked a really good uh, conversation and and it, like all through the week now it's it's just it's just really built up in my mind that that this conversation needs to be had and now i remember you know, one of the most significant uh the, the bear smart society in whistler so i got the chance to visit uh, we're a thousand kilometers away from whistler but i visited whistler a few times you know 10 15 years ago and and I was just just re- re- so remarkable how they uh, and the COs and stuff and the yeah. uh, the city of Whistler has managed 
to live uh, and coexistence in the forest and to maintain uh, corridors and habitats for 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 their bear population. You know? okay. I was just so impressed with that, right? So, Chris, it's an amazing video, and it's certainly got everybody talking. I encourage people to check it out, and thanks a lot for coming on to talk to me about it today. Thanks for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. That is Chris Paulson. He's a farmer in, in uh, near Burns Lake in British Columbia. Yeah, he's the guy who grabbed the lynx by the scruff of the neck after he caught it in the chicken coop.